Welcome, fantastic friends, to the new episode of the Fancast at Four podcast, the number one Fantastic Four fan casting podcast on the internet. Presumably. I'd say positively. I'm Dan Bettenhausen. And I am Jack Mayer. And we are your hosts as we venture into the what-ifs of Marvel's first family, who will be appearing in Phase 6 of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. With Matt Shackman set to direct the MCU's Fantastic Four film, we still can explore what it would be like if a different director was behind the camera and who might they cast. This week, we are excited to have our friend Pat Bolfamonte, co-collaborator and creator of the awesome YouTube channel The Montiverse, joining us. For all of you new listeners, Pat was also the show's first guest when we talked about Steven Spielberg. Pat, thank you for making a return appearance. Please, tell our new listeners a little bit about yourself. What's up, guys? It's Monty <laughs> from the Montyverse here. I'm back. I was the first guest on the show, and Dan has not had me on since because I did such a horrible job. You're in the pre-co-host era. <laughs> I think you should be the first guest of every new year. You were yeah. the f- first guest in 2022. Now you're the first guest of 2023. Oh, right. I'm excited to be back. I love the Fantastic Four. I love directors named Matt. I'm so glad that I could be here for this episode. With Pat introduced, let's take an opportunity to introduce this director named Matt that we will be discussing. He is an American film director, producer, and screenwriter who was first recognized as the co-creator of the Carrie Russell show Felicity alongside J.J. Abrams. He gained attention as a filmmaker with well-reviewed smaller-budget horror films before transitioning into bigger-budget and sci-fi superhero films. While he has yet to be nominated for an Academy Award, he has been nominated and won multiple Saturn Awards, which recognize achievement in fantasy, horror, and sci-fi media. This week, we are featuring, as alluded to, a Matt, Matt Reeves. Pat and Jack, what else comes to mind for you when you think about Matt Reeves? Hey, I don't know if that song is public domain. I'm sure it is. <laughs> yeah, it's gotta yeah. be by now, right? Come come get us, YouTube copyright. I dare you. <laughs> they will. They have and they will. <laughs> um, yeah, Matt Reeves, it's gotta be the best film of 2022, The Batman. But also, every time I think about Felicity, I think of the outrage across America that Carrie Russell cut her hair. Oh, yeah. And yeah. So that, I don't that think Jack was alive when this was going on. I, I'm sure I was. I just wasn't cognizant at the time. Yeah, probably not. But that Jack, was what about you? The whole world cared. <laughs> uh, I probably think of the new Apes trilogy, but also now his new Batman trilogy. Uh, you know, I saw Dawn and War both in theaters. Uh, it was around the age where those movies were exciting. Um, I loved both of them. We're going to be discussing one of them a little bit later. Uh but yeah, the Batman's like the big thing on everyone's mind. Pattinson, great choice for part of Bruce Wayne. We'll discuss this much later. Uh, in fact, I think that might be a great segue Agreed. into our first segment for Fantastic Films. Here we will discuss four great films directed by Matt Reeves. So start off with uh, 2008's Cloverfield. Yes, let's. Uh, Yeah, this is what really, I think, put Matt Reeves on the map. It was this small budget, found footage, alien invasion, kaiju monster film uh, that I think kind of took the, 
the film world by storm, we had a lot of, while it, I definitely think it has some sci-fi or excuse me, horror elements, um, I think it kind of goes beyond what we got with like Paranormal Activity or Blair Witch Project. And you really got this sense of scope and scale, even with found footage film. Yeah, it's also got one of the most striking posters I've ever seen. Mm-hmm. Uh, that image of the Statue of Liberty ripped in half. Yeah. Uh, New York City absolutely ravaged. Uh, is something that has never left my brain since seeing that poster. I don't know if you were old enough yet, Jack, but Dan, I know that you were. Do you remember like the the big like to do when this trailer dropped for for Cloverfield? It just dropped. It said from J.J. Abrams, produced by J.J. Abrams, and it just had the date on it. It was one thirteen, I think. 10. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Um, yes, yes. And no one knew what it was, and it was that the and it was just the Statue of Liberty's head come like flying through the streets of Manhattan. So yeah, it, it definitely onto the poster, one of the most iconic poster trailer combinations in cinema history. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, I was not old enough at the time, uh, <laughs> but I also think it's so interesting that this like small found footage horror movie then end up spawning. What is a fairly successful franchise at this point? I remember when the 10 Cloverfield lane trailer dropped and nobody knew it was a Cloverfield movie. Nobody knew a Cloverfield movie was even coming out. And then you see this like teaser trailer at the Super Bowl, I think. Yeah. And boom, we've got a new Cloverfield movie coming out. I know Matt Reeves didn't direct, so I don't want to get too off topic here, but 10 Cloverfield Lane is a fantastic movie. Absolutely. I love it so much. Uh, definitely my favorite of the IP yeah, not enough Cloverfield monster in Ten Cloverfield Lane, but it's very good. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the monster—the monster's not not supposed to be the scary thing. Yeah. In it. But again, just tying it back, you only have Ten Cloverfield Lane because the first Cloverfield right. was such a success. Yeah. It completely reinvents the way that we see found footage and the way that movies decided to use found footage on higher budgets than Paranormal Activity. Yeah. Uh, obviously, it's primarily used for horror. Then still. But it really takes that found footage and puts it on a grander scale than it had been done before. And you got to respect it just for that. Yeah. Yeah. Also, it really revolutionized viral marketing as well, mm -hmm. because like the Internet marketing campaign for that movie, the interactive marketing with the fan base, like drove the Internet wild. Like it was was something that was never seen before that they ended up using uh, a bit of that for the Batman as well. So I really think Matt Reeves did have a part in that. And he continues to use that in a lot of his films. And I think that was another thing that this film really brought to the entertainment industry. And it had a nice bit of horror and sci-fi with this found footage. It also had a sense of scale. You had these creepy crawly kind of like body snatchy aliens on the ground, but you still had this looming threat of the big kind of kaiju monster city destroying monster as well but i think really the final cherry on top is we get to see tj miller get killed i don't know about you but that was certainly a nice cherry on top for me upon rewatch he's also not in the movie until that scene (laughs) he's also just the guy holding the camera so you don't really see much of him throughout the film yeah great that's excellent (laughs) even better I think that's a good place to move on to our next film. Uh, This film was released in 2010 and is the remake of a Swedish horror film. Um, We're talking about Let Me In, starring Cody Smith-McPhee, Chloe Grace Moretz, Richard Jenkins. 
as not a big horror fan, I was pleasantly surprised with how much I enjoyed this movie. Um, Jack, this is the one you picked, so I'm going to let you talk about this more heavily. So I am a big fan of the original Let the Right One In, uh, both the movie, but then there's also a play of Let the Right One In that I'm a really big fan of that I once did a scene for uh, as part of an acting uh, ensemble that I was in. It's rare that you find an American remake as good as Let Me In, something that takes all of the elements that you love about the original Swedish film, which again is fantastic. And if you haven't seen that, the right one in, definitely go seek it out because it's wonderful. But it takes the best parts of that movie and brings it to an American audience in a way that honors the original, but also makes it feel of late 2000s early 2010s america it's got like all these anxieties and horrors surrounding the time but it also has a very sweet center at its core this relationship between this vampire girl and this human boy pat have you seen let me in uh no i have not uh i was this was at a time in my life where i was boycotting anything to do with vampires and love just two things i don't think go well together I think Twilight really ruined that for me uh, and has just ever since then left a bad taste for both romance and vampires and also like Kristen Stewart. (laughs) (laughs) I will say, I wouldn't say, uh, say this is so much a romance film, certainly a friendship builds between, but like that sweet center that I'm talking about, like it's got like this really good friendship at its core. And speaking of those two main characters, as good as these two young actors, especially these child actors at the time, have been in other films, I would argue these are probably some of their best performances. Um, And I think it's a credit to Reeves to get these strong performances in a very dark and heavy movie from, again, at the time, these two children in Cody McPhee and uh, Chloe Grace Moretz especially Chloe Grace Moretz, and she's, again, obviously been in excellent films since. But this was really, I think, what put her on the map. It's what put Cody Smith-McPhee on the rise, I suppose. I, I know I really love this movie. I would highly recommend, Pat, you check it out. Uh, and then also our listeners, if you haven't seen it yet, definitely go check it out. And again, like I think what's great about Let Me In as well is that we start to see... Uh, Matt Reeves really start to come to his own as a director. He's moving away from found footage into more standard filmmaking. And what I like about Let Me In is that Matt Reeves tends to be sort of a cold director for me. Uh, He presents information rather than guiding you along through it. And he doesn't always like hold your hand. He allows you to get in the world see who these characters are. He doesn't pass judgment on any of the characters. He just lets them be and lets them play out in the world that they're in. And I think that that works incredibly well here. And we see that on display with the relationship between Owen and Abby. I agree 100%. And I do think you get some precursors of the last film we're going to be talking about today. It's probably pretty obvious to our, our listeners, but just with literally the darkness, most of the stuff set at night, the the violence, well... In this final film we'll be talking about, there's not as much blood as there would be being that this is a vampire film. I feel like kind of the the energy uh, of the the violence 
is still pretty similar, especially against the dark backdrop in Let Me In and this future film we'll be talking about. I wonder what that could be. I know. Well, before we get there, uh, let's talk about Matt Reeves' 2014 epic. Yeah. Epic. Epic. It is epic. Dawn Dawn of the Planet of the Apes. Yeah, this was my choice. I think the his the apes trilogy this i guess newer new apes trilogy with rise dawn and war of the planet for the planet of the apes is a severely underrated trilogy and this is my favorite of the three i think it is the most complete film i think you get the best performance from andy circus as caesar the ape and i think you get some knockout performances from some of the human characters too like gary oldman as the antagonist gary oldman's uh, so good in this movie uh carrie russell jason clark is also very good cody smith mcphee shows up again as the child not my favorite performance from him in this film uh compared to let me in or some others he's been in but i think among the action the family dynamics between the human family and the colony and caesar's family and his colony of apes i think the dichotomy and the Um, similarities and differences that are explored between these two opposing groups is extremely fascinating as it ultimately leads to what we get in the next film, War of the Planet of the Apes. Uh, But again, I think this movie is carried by Andy Serkis as Caesar and Gary Oldman as the antagonist. I think he is easily the best antagonist in the three. Absolutely he is. Uh, As much as I like Woody Harrelson in War, I think... Uh, Gary Oldman brings just another level to the film. It's also some of the most visceral action totally. of the trilogy. Yeah. Like apes on horses. Crazy. Guns. Fucking crazy. It's so good. It's so much fun, but it's got a real heart to it again. Like that's it's so good about Matt Reeves. He just, he <laughs> injects large scale whether it's apes on horses or vampires or billionaires who dress in bat suits and gives it that heart. He never, as the director, lets you know what to empathize with or who to empathize with. This movie is a perfect example of why I connect so well with Matt Reeves as a director and why I'm such a huge fan of his work. Because Cloverfield, this, and the next movie we talk about they're three completely separate genres of movie. You have Absolutely. A, a kaiju movie, you have a vampire dark horror-esque movie, and you have a comic book movie. And now you have this movie, which is very much sci-fi, very much in the world of sci-fi. And Matt Reeves is, <clears throat> and a lot of other directors I think would be afraid to do this. He embraces the fantastical and the weird and the zany of the worlds that he chooses to inhabit. But he understands humanity and character so well, and he lets that bleed through. And it's always the most important thing in his stories, no matter what story he's telling or no matter how he's choosing to tell it. And that, to me, means so much because that is something I connect to. It's something I connected to when I was reading comics. I was connected to the character's journeys, the ethos, the pathos. And he understands that very, very well in all of his films. We talked about Gary Oldman as the antagonist, at least as the human side. I can't forget uh, Koba, who is the antagonist on the ape side. Koba Tebbel. Thank you. Who's uh, initially this subservient ape, like Caesar had saved him and he owes his life to Caesar, but he gets more and more disillusioned as he very much distrusts humans and humanity, which 
I imagine for good reason, um, but that just leads him down a dark path. And the scene that really stands out is when these two humans are on like guard duty over this cache of weapons, and he comes in and starts dancing around like, I'll say, a dumb ape, when in fact, uh, and then he gets his hand on a gun and then blows him away. And all of his other apes start getting weapons, and that leads to the apes on horses scene that Jack alluded to before. So again, just the dichotomy between the heroes and antagonists on both sides, the infighting, the outfighting, the fight between, I think really makes this the strongest entry, maybe since the original Planet of the Apes. And my point being, to kind of echo Pat's embracing the, the fantastical and the weird, I'd say this was a pretty maligned franchise for the longest time Mm -hmm. uh, because it was silly it was goofy and i don't think it was taken seriously but matt reeves after rise matt reeves continued to take it seriously and that's why i think this trilogy is as great as it is well our final film that we're going to be talking about uh, in case you haven't been able to guess is film from last year film that uh pat's choice of film 2022's the batman dan i'm gonna mute I don't know if you want to mute. We can let Pat take it away. Uh, go ahead, Pat. Go ahead. I mean, some people would call it the best film of 2022. Uh, me being one of them. I think this movie slaps so gosh dang hard. Matt Reeves. See, what this movie cements for me about Matt Reeves is that Matt Reeves is someone who gets it. He get, we t- I talked about it with Planet of the Apes. He understands the worlds that he chooses to live in, and he understood the world of Batman in a way that I don't really think any other director before him has really attempted to or tried to understand. I mean, Nolan's films, while well-regarded, I don't think ever really were able to take the fantastical, the gothic, the darkness of Batman and fully utilize it the way that Matt Reeves was able to in this film, he creates such a stunning world. A world ripped straight from many, many Batman comics, and he inhabits it with some of the most interesting portrayals of Batman and his classic rogues gallery, his allies that we have seen in film, and it feels lived in. It feels like he creates a world that not only exists and exists to entertain us, but it feels real and unreal at the same time. And it's such a beautiful, beautiful thing. Pattinson as as Bruce Wayne and Batman, what an out-of-the-box choice for him to make. And I think that he nailed it. I think that every casting choice in this film was nailed. Every creative decision, really, by Matt Reeves was, I think, done extremely well. I think he told a story that he wanted to tell, a story that blends in some of the greatest Batman stories of all time, which just goes to show you how much effort and work he put into this film. There are shades of Batman's ego, uh, the long Halloween, Batman Earth One, and he cherry-picked from all of these amazing Batman stories and told a new story to add to the Batman mythos. And it's really something to be amazed at, that you have this guy who's coming in off the heels of such an iconic Batman trilogy as Nolan's, and then the, the Snyderverse, and then he takes something and he goes... I'm going to do my own thing. And he does just that. He completely does his own thing. And you really have to marvel at just, oh my God, everything. It's such a spectacular film. All the way down from the use of lighting to the score, to the 
choice of color. This film is black and white and red all over in the most amazing way possible. The choice of telling a story that is 95% Batman and only like two scenes of Bruce Wayne is a choice that really shocked me. And yet we're able to tell such a human story about this boy who is dealing with this trauma, this darkness inside of him, but he realizes that he has to become a light for people. And yeah, I mean, I really have to call you guys back in here or else I just won't stop talking. So one of you is going to have to stop me at some point because we could really do this for hours. So, okay, I'm going to stop you then. Thanks, Dan. I mean, this movie is great. I think I need to give it a few more viewings before I definitively put it at the top of my Batman movies. I, I think really it comes down, one thing that this movie does great too is the cast. Reeves put together a great cast. I think Dano is the Riddler, Battenson, um, Zoe Kravitz, Jeffrey Wright, um, and I know I'm missing many others, but that casting, the chemistry among all of them is top notch. And I think this intro, the Batman intro of the Riddler is one of the most jarring and interesting intros to one, a movie and to two, a character that I re can recall in a long time. I think this movie's good. <laughs> I, I am, I am the, I am probably the lowest of the three of us on this movie. Um, part of that is because I don't love a ton of comic movies. I think this movie is leaps and bounds better than anything that Nolan put out. Let me just get that off, like, off the play. I think this is the best Batman movie that we have gotten since Batman Returns in 1992. For me, parts of this movie just don't quite come together the way that they should. And I'm sure that anything that I mentioned, Pat will uh, disprove me on and I'll be like, you're correct. But I think the third act gets a little... It, it overstates its welcome a little bit. Uh, I don't love that they introduced the Joker at the end. I agree. Like, it feels like too much of like a at, at, see what's coming next. Like, you I was need the fine. Joker and everything. I yeah, was that's, fine that's with a complaint to have. I was fine with Dana as the Riddler. I would have liked more Falcone. I'm spoilers. Like, they kill Falcone. I would have, I would have liked him more in the second movie and kill him at the midpoint of that movie there rather than the end of act two in this one. I think Farrell at Colin Farrell as the penguin is excellent uh, and is also very funny. Uh, that's the other thing that I think I look at this movie in a little bit of a different way than other people. I think this movie is absurd and I think it's great for that. I think Paul Dano and Robert Pattinson at Arkham Asylum when Paul Dano's doing his, this is not how this was supposed to go. I think this is one of the funniest performances of the year. And I think that it's contrasted by Robert Pattinson in the bat suit being like, what did you do? What did you do? And I, I think that, again, I think Reeves knows it's silly, but I was more shocked by how everyone else in the theater was like, oh my God, this is high cinema. This is incredible. And I was just like, because this is kind of ridiculous. This is kind of <laughs> funny. But yeah, again, I like this movie. I think a lot of it worked. If it was two hours and 15 minutes, I think it would be perfect. But I do think that there is a solid 45 minutes of this movie that could have been cut, added into other parts, or saved for a sequel. Uh, yeah, the the final things I want to say on the film, well, not so much a film, one on the film, 
uh, as a resident fat guy, as great as Colin Farrell was, I think that role should have been reserved for a fat guy. Maybe a Richard Kind. I, I'd love to see Richard Kind as the Penguin. I joke there a little bit, but again, fat, give fat guys fat guy roles. Uh, secondly, uh, you said Batman Returns. I think you meant Batman and Robin, Jack, when you're talking about the greatest Batman film since. All right, now I got to interrupt. Dad, you're getting take, me cold. I can only take too much slander, right? I got Jack coming in here talking about me as one of those guys in the theater going, this is high <laughs> cinema. But also respecting the meme quality of it because that's what comic books oh, well, that's are. The thing. Well, that's what I'm saying. It's just like, like, look, like it was so, it was such a meme. It was such a freaking meme. Yeah, but that, but that's why I love this movie because that's what comic but it books wasn't, are. But that's the thing is that it wasn't serious. I never took it seriously for a second. Okay, um, there's probably a lot more we could say. I, I have to say one more thing, and that okay, is okay. Mask of the Phantasm. Okay, I'll I'll, is... I'll concede you masking the phantasm. I, right. pers- I personally just I I love returns. Just that's as fair. There is clearly a lot more we could say about Matt Reeves' films, and more specifically the Batman. But I do think it is time we get into our fantastic fan castings. Here, each of us will cast the main members of the Fantastic Four: Reed Richards, Sue Storm, Johnny Storm, Ben Grimm, and their nemesis Doctor Doom, with an actor or actress Matt Reeves has worked with previously and who has not had a major role in the MCU. Pat. As our guest, you have the honor of sharing your cast first. Okay, so Matt Reeves has worked with many great actors. Unfortunately, I had a very specific movie in mind, and a lot of the actors that he worked with have had roles in the MCU. So I will be stating right now, I cheated once, maybe twice, but it's okay, because guess what? I was the first guest on the show. I'm allowed to take liberties, all right? Mm -hmm. Is that how that works? I yes. guess. I don't know. We'll just say yes. We'll go with it. Listen, you invite me on your show. You insult me. Listen, you, you, per, you, per, you produced a couple of these episodes. I think you're valid. <laughs> All right. So for my Reed Richards, we have John Cho, who appeared in Felicity Season 1, Episode 2, The Last Stand, directed by Matt Reeves. For my Sue Storm, I have Felicity herself, Carrie Russell, who also just happened to appear in Dawn of the Planet of the Apes, both directed by Matt Reeves. Uh, Johnny Storm, I have Mike Vogel, who was in Cloverfield. My Ben Grimm, this is actually my cheat. You may have thought John Cho was my cheat, but this is my actual cheat. My Ben Grimm is Christopher Gorham, who appeared in eight to ten episodes of Felicity that were all written by Matt Reeves. And Christopher Gorm, you may know from shows like Covert Affairs or uh, the Lincoln Lawyer TV show. Great actor. And I really wanted him for my Ben Grimm. Uh, For my Doctor Doom, Toby Kebbell, Redemption. Toby Kebbell, Redemption. That's basically it. I have a few people I casted extra, but I'll save them for my screenplay. Jack, please uh, share your cast now. Gladly. My cast, as my Reed Richards, I picked the actor who played the Penguin in the Batman, Colin Farrell, as his Sue Storm, Invisible Woman, one of my favorite working actresses right now, Tony Collette. Johnny Storm, uh, Cody Smith McPhee, he's been getting a lot of these younger uh, superhero roles, but I think that I would love to see him play something a little bit more against type and be a little bit more of a wise-ass. And as Ben Grimm, uh, one of my favorite performers i ever who i think needs more roles like this uh steve zahn 
who was in War oh, for yeah. the Planet of the Apes as Bad Ape. But if you don't know Steve Zahn, uh, go watch that thing you do. It's a great film. And to be honest, I, I haven't actually thought of a Doctor Doom. There's There have been a couple of days. Sorry. Hold on. Sorry. I'm just I'm getting some. Here, one sec. Oh, no. Hey, guys. How, how you doing? Oh, Mark. Mark Wahlberg. When did you no, get here? I'm here. I've been here the whole time. I heard, I heard you having trouble casting Doctor Doom. Well, well, you know, I was in a movie that Matt Reeves wrote and produced. Did you know that? I, I didn't know I that didn't. Mark was cool. Yeah. Yeah, no, I was. It was in a movie that he produced. It was The Odds. It was in 2000. It was really good. It was a really good movie. Yeah. Uh, I guess I can be Doctor Doom if you, if you need to be Doctor Doom. Yeah, I can do that. Uh, Sure, Mark. Sure. All right, cool. Thanks. Yeah, I'll head back. All right, cool. Good to see you. Bye, Mark. Aren't we lucky to have had Mark Wahlberg make a few appearances on the Fancast of Four podcast? That's that strange. Wild. Does he live in your recording studio? Well, I, I'm in Boston right now, full disclosure, and he's just, like, always around. Fair enough. Like there, he he's some he's like Santa Claus of Boston. He is somehow at every house at every moment in the evening. So yeah, so I guess Mark Wahlberg is my Doctor Doom. I love a bit, but anyway, my cast for Reed Richards, I've cast Steven Spielberg's father, Paul Dano, who appeared as the Riddler in the Batman. <laughs> uh, for Sue Storm. I cast Lizzie Kaplan, who appears in Cloverfield and has a wonderful scene where she explodes. Yeah. Um, I figure spo- it's an old film. Spo- if you haven't seen it yet, you weren't going to, or hearing that Lizzie Kaplan explodes might get you to go watch it. For Johnny Storm, I cast uh, Cody Smith McPhee's bully in Let Me In, Dylan Minnette. And also um, America's bully for starring in 13 Reasons Why. <laughs> <laughs> I was waiting for someone to make something comment like that. For Ben Grimm, I went with an actor who appeared in Matt Reeves' first directorial film, The Pallbearer, and that is Greg Grunberg. And finally, for my Doctor Doom, I went back to the Batman and cast Zoe Kravitz. Hmm. I like it. I'm excited to see that. Yeah, I I think across the board, some very interesting, uh, albeit rule-bending casts, but you know, as Pat as the first guest and former producer and Jack as the co-host, they have some sway and power, I guess. And me? I guess. Oh, and Mark Wahlberg. Hey, if Mark Wahlberg makes an appearance, you know, I can't say no to Marky Mark. Hey, Dan, Dan, you mind if I I transition us into the next next segment? Please, Mark, introduce the next segment. Yeah, of course. Well, we got a film's cast now. The cast is going to be great. It's time to pitch our Matt Reeves Helm Fantastic Four film. Okay, before we get into those pitches, Mark, I do have two questions. First, for the both of you, are your films origin films? Uh, Mine is not an origin film. Mine is an origin film. Mine is as well. Secondly, are your films part of the MCU? Uh, Yes, my film is heavily cemented into the Marvel Cinematic Universe, and I'm going to clip out my pitch and send it directly to Kevin Feige himself. Yes, my film is in an MCU. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> the wording there makes me a little nervous uh as much as i would love mine to be in the mcu i cannot say in good conscience that it is um so with those questions answered pat i'm going to turn it back to you to present your matt reeves fantastic four film pitch all right here we go The Marvel Studios fanfare plays as we open to a breaking news alert from the Daily Bugle. 
But instead of J. Jonah Jameson, we see Christine Everhart, who now works for the growing company that gained notoriety for covering the acts of the mysterious Spider-Man. Everhart, played again by a returning Leslie Bibb, explains that there is a creature attacking Manhattan, seemingly appearing from underneath Central Park, with monster attacks becoming a semi-regular occurrence in New York after the incident, the in-universe name for the Battle of New York. Engaging the monster are the Fantastic Four. With no Avengers, this group has burst onto the scene to help the world usher in a new age of Marvels. Everhart then gives us a brief history of the team, which is intercut with security cam footage of the battle in Central Park, past video clips and photos. Think like Cloverfield-esque guerrilla-style uh, scenes and clips intercut in this giant battle as the news report is going on. The team's origins trace all the way back to the infamous Baxter Foundation think tank based out of California that was a government-funded operation aimed to cultivate young geniuses. We see black and white photos of Howard Stark and Hank Pym in the Baxter Foundation labs. There, Reed Richards met his teammate and fiance Susan Storm, when an experiment by one of the members went horribly wrong, severely injuring multiple people, the government shut down the program. Richards and Storm would go on to make a small fortune selling some of their patents, and they began the Future Foundation, an operation with one goal, to make a better tomorrow, starting today. Former S.W.O.R.D. pilot Benjamin Grimm, also the childhood best friend of Richards, was another founding member of the Future Diff Foundation, along with influencer Johnny Storm. After the blip, the Foundation launched multiple crewed missions into space to study the effects the massive amounts of cosmic energy have had on our planet. On what would be their final launch, everything appeared normal again after the event known as the Emergence occurred. The Emergence is the giant celestial hand of Tiamat that is currently sticking out of the Indian Ocean that happened in the Eternals. The group went up to research the fallout from the event when the ship was bombarded with a sudden burst of cosmic energy which changed the four passengers forever. They gained amazing abilities, and the FFs on their uniforms led to the media dubbing them the Fantastic Four. We will continue to cover this story as it unfolds, but we now return to J. Jonah Jameson as he asks the important question, Spider-Man, hero or menace? Spider-Man picture cameo right here for all the Tom Holland fans. Smash cut to the Fantastic Four taking on the creature in Central Park. This creature is Giganto, and during the battle, I envision a recreation of the classic cover of Fantastic Four number one that has uh, Giganto on it and the Fantastic Four fighting. Exactly, Dan. Dan is recreating it for me right now in wonderful fashion. Uh, Giganto looks very similar to his comic appearance, uh, except in my story, I want him to look like he was a combination of a Skrull, Abomination, and Ebony Maw, but on a larger scale. The foursome as is a well-oiled machine. Reed and Sue move and rescue civilians with their abilities, while Johnny and Ben begin their assault. After a truly amazing action set piece, one that will make Martin Scorsese shed a tear with its beauty, Reed will scan the creature and notice that there are signals being sent directly to it originating underground. He descends through the hole the creature emerged from and discovers the culprit. It is Mole Man, played by Colin Farrell, and even more prosthetics, then he had on in the Batman. I want the new trope in Matt Reeves movies to be Colin Farrell showing up in everyone and just putting on more and more 
makeup and prosthetics until he looks as ridiculous as possible in the most unattractive and weird way. Reed recognizes the man as Dr. Harvey Rupert Elder, a brilliant geneticist that used to mentor the kids at the Baxter Think Tank. A kind man that was always made fun of for his appearance, they called him the Mole Man. He explains that he loved teaching brilliant young minds like Reed and Victor, but after he was fired, he went back to his first passion, creating new species of creatures. He found funding and purpose, and since he was shunned by society, he decided to create his own, taking the name The Mole Man, as a reminder of the cruelty he experienced. Just then, Sue is able to take down Giganto, and it falls hard to the ground, with the distraction allowing Mole Man to get away. And when Reed surfaces, he sees the creature knocked out. We don't have to clean this thing up, right? Asked Johnny. We regroup with the four at what is their new home, the Baxter Building, the former Avengers Tower in the heart of Manhattan. Once home to Earth's mightiest heroes is now a haven for scientific exploration. In the case of Johnny, TikTok videos. This is when we get to spend time with the four heroes and really get to know them as we see Reed and Sue earn a healthy relationship, both optimistic in their hopes for a bright future. Johnny and Ben are constantly bickering. While they appear to hate each other, their relationship, like them both, is more complicated than it appears. Johnny and Ben are vastly different, but the same in that they both have this facade they put up. Ben is tough, having grown up cold and wet as a Yancey string delinquent, but it is only to hide how much he cares about his friends and how afraid he is of being alone. Johnny is all ego and snark, the classic definition of a hothead. I mean, I guess in his case it is more literal than others. He has a chip on his shoulders because he constantly felt like he was living in Sue's shadow. He loves his sister more than anything, and he is nothing but happy for her, but he grew up in a family of scientists, and because Sue excelled at science, he always felt like their parents loved her more. Now he craves the spotlight, constantly seeking validation and acceptance from people who mean nothing, just so that he feels good enough. While on paper, Reed is the leader, Sue is the matriarch of this family, always keeping the peace keeping Reed grounded while also trying to leave her mark in the scientific community. She's the most powerful member of the team, but it is overwhelming for her at times. It's not easy being the partner of someone everyone believes is the smartest man on earth. Sometimes she feels invisible next to him. If there's one thing I can say about this Reed Richards, it's that he's always trying. He tries to be the best partner to Sue, tries to support his best friend Ben and his future brother-in-law Johnny. He feels like he has the weight of the world on his shoulder, but he welcomes the challenge. He wants to build a better world for the next generation. During the battle, Ben saves a blind woman named Alicia Masters. And in this movie, I'm going to take another Felicity co-star. And since, you know, my channel just happens to feature a lot of Power Ranger content, I'm going to have Matt Reeves throw a bone to Amy Jo Johnson everyone in the 90s first crush and the pink power ranger kimberly hart and she will be playing my alicia masters so anyway ben saves alicia and visits her in the hospital they get to know each other ben and johnny's subplot of this movie will be ben coming to terms with his self-loathing learning to love himself and get the courage to pursue a relationship with alicia johnny feeling for ben and understanding the desire not to be alone will help him or at least johnny's version of help Reed and Sue talk about the attack from the beginning of the film, with Reed explaining to Sue that it was their old teacher from the Think Tank. She explains that she hasn't seen him since before Victor's accident. 
Just then, the building shakes, and Gigantor emerges from beneath the East River. He's making his way towards the FDR Drive, and traffic is heavy. Reed sounds the alarm. We cut to Johnny, who is live-streaming from a hot tub on Twitch. Damn it, Reed, he exclaims. We hear a flame-on alert in the background from his Twitch stream. Hey, Firecrotch50, thanks for the 50 gifted. I appreciate you. Cut again to the floor, about to engage the monster. Reed emphasizing the need to keep the monster in the water or else casualties would be unavoidable. The four stand heroically. This is the trailer shot. Close up on Ben who states, well, I guess that means it's Clob. Just then the creature is hit with a beam of light and begins to dissolve into nothing. That was easy. Nice work, Stretch, states Johnny. That wasn't me, says Reed. Just then the sky darkens and the four look up at what appears to be a giant dome that is looming over them. Another beam of light, this one more translucent, touches the ground as a being descends. It is Ben Feldman, comedic actor best known as Jonah in Superstore, and that dude from the beginning of the Friday the 13th reboot. Hello, Fantastic Four. My name is Reed Richards, and I'm here to save the universe. I mean, technically I wasn't wrong, says Johnny, as the other three members of the team look on in confusion. Cut to the interior of the Baxter building. Reed 1610 explains that he is from another Earth, one that is far different yet similar to our own. Instead of the Avengers, we have the Ultimates. Instead of six Infinity Stones, we have eight Infinity Gems. And instead of Peter Parker, we have... But before he could finish, Johnny asks, who's that? The younger Storden sibling then continues on. So I have a question. You say you're Reed, and I don't want to be that guy... But our Reed looks like this, and you look like that, pointing out the fact that the 616 Reed is older and Korean. Fair question. One that can be answered two ways, states 1610 Reed. The first being that the multiverse is a fascinating place. An infinite number of variables at work. In this case, Evelyn Richards of this Earth was Korean, while my mother was not. The other reason being that our abilities are vastly stronger than even I realized at first. We stretch, but it goes well beyond that. One example of this is changing shape. This read then cycles through multiple looks, which happen to be Yoan Grufford, Miles Teller, and John Krasinski. While in Krasinski form, Johnny barks that one. You should have totally used that one. Read 1610 then explains his reason for being here. He says the multiverse is collapsing onto itself, and he is trying to save it. They join him in the Flying Dome, and he explains that this dome is a place he built that allows him to travel between universes. A being called King came to read 1610 one day and helped him design this utopia in the hopes that he would travel the multiverse preventing incursions, which is a destructive event where two realities collide and destroy each other over an eight-hour period. King warned him of the coming end of the multiverse, and that is something that Reed refused to accept. On the dome are a collection of the brightest young minds from across the multiverse, and he calls them the Children of Tomorrow. Reed 1610 continues explaining that he was drawn to their Earth due to a multiversal rupturing event which occurred not too long ago. Afraid that this event would force an incursion, he asks their group for help in preventing this, and Reed and Sue stay on the dome while Johnny and Ben decide this is all really above their pay grade. This is when Ben and Johnny would bond as Johnny gets Ben to put himself out there and go and talk to Alicia Masters. My Ben and Johnny are going to be two sides of the same coin, both dealing with insecurities in unhealthy ways. 
Johnny with his self-absorption and Ben with his tough guy exterior, as well as his exile and isolation from humanity outside of missions. The scenes of Johnny and Ben would be intercut with scenes of the two Reeds and Sue discussing the incursions and working on how to stop them. Alicia begins to break down Ben's walls as Ben learns to love himself through Alicia's eyes. Her sight may be gone, but no one has ever really truly seen Ben the way that she sees him. Johnny, having helped Ben build up the confidence to talk to Alicia, also sees that there is more to life than being the center of attention, and he begins to yearn for the love Ben and Alicia have found, while also understanding Ben and himself more. Just as the movie makes us feel warm and fuzzy on the inside, we return our attention back to the Utopian Dome, where 616 Reed discovers that an incursion is imminent and that the dome is what is causing it. He goes to get Sue, but as he does, he is captured by 1610 Reed. This Reed reveals his true intentions. He was one of the brightest minds on his planet. However, he was never treated with the respect he felt he deserved. He was a child of an abusive father, a prodigy amongst commoners, and always wanting to save an ungrateful world. He never truly felt anything for anyone until he met his Sue. Their Fantastic Four was one of the world's greatest heroes, but the more they tried to stop terrible things from happening, the more they did. 1610 Magneto and Doctor Doom caused a destructive event so massive it shattered the hero community. The 1610 Fantastic Four broke up and Sue rejected Reed's marriage proposal. It was then that he was visited by a Kang variant who warned 1610 Reed of the end of the world. He wanted Reed's help in stopping it, but Reed betrayed him and stole his multiverse traveling technology and reverse engineered it, applying it to the very dome they are on now. You see, this Reed realized that the only way to save humanity is to destroy it and start anew. He planned to destroy the other Earths and stated that this ship is not a utopia, but an ark. He has taken two of who he deems the most useful people on each Earth he has visited and placed them aboard under his control. 1610 Reed states that when he is done, a new perfect world will be born and he is the Maker. The Maker, which is what we will be calling 1610 Reed from here forward, then states that he can have anyone from any place in the multiverse, but the one person he can't have is his Sue. He reveals that when he told her and his Johnny and Ben his plans, they turned on him. Brokenhearted, he had no choice but to destroy his own world, a necessary evil in his mind. However, the reason he chose to reveal himself to this world is because the Sue of this Earth reminds him a lot of his own, and he'd hope to feel something again to be seen. Sue is, well, let's just say less than happy about all of this, and uses the full force of her abilities to free Reed and take down the Maker, who has begun using the mind-controlled Children of Tomorrow as human shields. The sky darkens, seen by Ben and Johnny, who race back to the Ark, knowing that something is up. A freed Reed reveals that he has discovered the Maker's plan, and there is a device located at the top of the Ark that opens rifts into the multiverse, causing disturbances undetected until an incursion begins. Reed and Sue make their way to the machine, but are cut off by dozens of innocent beings being puppeteered by the Maker. Johnny and Ben arrive, and as they are about to start pounding and burning the children of tomorrow reed informs them of everything this is the end game the fantastic four have to maneuver around the children of tomorrow without causing casualties and reach the device before the damage done by it is irreversible 
This action set piece will allow us to see the Fantastic Four fully realized, each fighting together for a common goal. I imagine it to be full-on team-up maneuvers that utilize the team's ability. Think of like Reed turning into a fan that spreads Johnny's flames, or Sue putting in uh, a force field around Ben and throwing him like a giant wrecking ball. The team eventually fight their way to the machine, a ball of gyroscopic rings rotating around a cube with purple highlights. However, the maker was waiting for them and subdues the entire team with devices to counteract their abilities. He remarks that he has killed the Fantastic Four once already, and he is quite good at it. The machine powers up further as we see the multiverse tear expand with other Earths appearing through the rift. The maker's plan is perfect, except for one flaw of hubris. He, like everyone else, have underestimated Johnny Storm. He never calculated on the fact that Johnny was always holding back, but now Johnny has something to fight for. Love. For his family, and for himself. He burns hotter than he ever has before, melting the inhibitor collar around his neck. He yells and unleashes a white-hot wave of plasma that catches part of the Maker's face, knocking him out in shock. He frees the team and collapses from exhaustion as the other three all work together to turn off the device. Sue uses all of her might to contain the energy waves. Ben holds the rings, stopping them from spinning, and Reed makes his fingers the size of a paperclip as he disarms the device. The battle is won. The Earth is saved. The Maker is put into custody, and the Dome is locked away in a neutral area by the joint world governments. The film closes at the Baxter building as Reed and Sue host a dinner party for Ben and Alicia. Johnny joins as he stares at his sister, Reed, Ben, Alicia, and he smiles. Sue and Reed are holding hands as they stand together and thank everyone for coming. We pan to Reed who gives a speech about family and the future. He says him and Sue have big news. A quick cut to Sue. We're pregnant. Quick cut to Johnny and Ben who both drop their forks mid-bite. Cut to black. Post-credits. We cut to a secret government facility. The maker is in a cell. We zoom out of the security camera as he and the Ark are being monitored by the Mole Man, as we pan back even further, as the Mole Man is in a throne room, with a man in a green cloak sitting on a chair. I have waited long enough. The man turns, and it is doom. Cut to black. The Fantastic Four will return. That was a very sweaty pitch. That was yeah. incredibly sweaty. That was... Uh, <laughs> anyone who reads comic books are going to go, whoa, I know what that is. Yeah, oh, I was very familiar with a lot of different uh, story beats you had there. Uh, very sweaty. And certainly something I could see in the MCU. Call me Feige. I'm available. <laughs> we We've tried that. a few times, you know. Jack has an in. We'll see if we can pull some strings. Yeah, yeah I mean, like, Feige, I got Kevin on speed dial. If Mark um, Wahlberg could put a word in for me with Feige. Yeah, he may have to play Doom. Sorry, bitch. <laughs> That would have been better with me in it, but you know, yeah. it was really good. I got a roll for you, Mark. Don't worry, right. get me in. It's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> what? No. <laughs> uh, no, that was, that was great. And that was more of a treatment than a pitch, I think. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It was a lot. It was a lot. <laughs> but no, very good. Uh, solid, solid first pitch of 2023. Jack. Absolutely. A lot, both in quality and quantity, to live up to with your first pitch of the year. Uh, but with that said, I'm going to turn it over to you. Yeah, I don't know if quality is necessarily what we're looking for in this pitch, but uh, try my best. Before I begin, let's uh, have a little title reveal. I wanted to go with something that was 
witty and fun and gave us the idea of what this movie was going to be. So that's why here as my first pitch of 2023, we have Fantastic Four, The Planet of the Apes. Now, I've not decided whether or not that four is going to be spelled F-O-U-R or F-O-R. Could be either one, whichever one is funnier, to be perfectly honest. The latter. Okay, so fantastic for the planet of the apes. We begin this film with what we think is the traditional Fantastic Four origin story. These four are going up into space on this experimental flight. Dr. Doom is also on this flight with them when suddenly there is this huge blast from a cosmic ray that hits all of the members of the Fantastic Four. Doesn't hit Dr. Doom. Want to make that clear. Uh, He is not affected by this. It'll make sense later. But the cosmic ray doesn't just affect the four. It also affects their spaceship. You see, at this point, they were still on takeoff. So their plane gets hit with this cosmic ray and it starts spinning out of control in space like it's Sandra Bullock in gravity. It's going every which way. No one can figure out what's going on. It's spinning farther and farther and farther and farther until finally it crash lands on a planet and we cut to black. Reed wakes up slowly. His head is pounding. His vision's going in and out. He thinks something is looking him directly in the eye. Oh my God, it's a spear. A spear is pointed right in between Reed Richards' eyes. He springs up, stumbles back, and realizes he's face-to-face with an ape. The ape grunts something at Reed. He doesn't understand it, but he can get it from visual clues that he should probably put his hands up. So he obliges, but suddenly his arms spring up. He stretches. Uh, The ape recoils, but recovers quickly. In anger, the ape throws the spear at Reed, but it stopped midair. Reed and the ape both look at it confused. It is soon revealed that Sue has caught it midair. She becomes visible again, looks at Reed, says, I got you. Uh, The ape runs away. Johnny quickly comes and finds them on fire let's let's make this very clear johnny has his power is like has his powers can't control them victor finds them uh doesn't have any powers but is super confused about what's going on as these four are having this conversation about what just happened where are they was that a monkey i just saw about 20 more apes come onto the ship all with spears pointed right at the four of them they all put their hands up they all get taken prisoner the only one they can't find is ben Grimm. As the four are being led off the ship, they notice a gigantic gaping hole in this ship that looks like it's been punched through. Next to it are a couple of stunned apes. Uh, We now start to follow two storylines. So we have the A story. Reed, Sue, Johnny, and Victor are prisoners of these apes, and each of them have different ideas about how to interact with the apes. Reed wants to escape. Sue wants to learn, Johnny wants to fight, and Victor wants whatever will get him off this planet quickest. Uh, This is a whole internal debate that the four of them are having. There's a little bit of action as they try an escape plan that fails. Johnny tries fighting against an ape, but it doesn't work. At a certain point, Johnny notices that the apes are having trouble starting a fire. And so he decides to throw a fireball at their uh, wood to start it. Uh, The apes spring back, but then they start to revere Johnny. They start to see these prisoners as people that could help. 
And Johnny, again, now being revered, now being seen as this star amongst the apes, starts to have a different sort of outlook on it. Maybe this planet isn't the worst thing ever. Maybe they're gods to these apes. What would it be like if we just stayed here? They learned from us. We learned from them. There's a whole thing we could do, but... Reed almost immediately tries to shut that down. He says, there's no way we have to get back to our home planet. Victor agrees with Reed on this. Uh, Sue is conflicted now, whether she sides more with her brother who has come around on her view, but doesn't ever want to leave the planet. Uh, our B storyline is Ben Grimm out in the wild. Uh, he is, of course, looks like the thing to... Ben, he looks disfigured, hideous, whatever, but he starts to learn a little bit more about himself through meeting an outcast ape. He, The two of them begin to communicate. Ben is able to form this connection with this ape, understanding through almost no dialogue how the two of them now see each other as equals. And that's going to be really powerful acting from Steve Zahn and also as his motion capture ape, who will probably be Andy Serkis. So eventually the two of them form this pact, this bond, this friendship, and Ben gets the ape to lead him to the colony where Reed, Sue, Johnny, and Victor are being held captive still. Uh, at, a, at this point, Reed is ready to leave the planet with or without Johnny. Johnny says that's fine. You go be a human back on Earth. I'll be a god here. Uh, but not before Ben comes in because he's found out something from this ape. These apes that are on this planet are so evolved at this point. They've been able to speak English this entire time. They're putting up this facade for these humans. They're pl they, they could have started that fire with or without Johnny but they've been keeping them there to harvest them. They want to harvest the powers of the Fantastic Four. Victor Von Doom sees this as an opportunity now. He wasn't hit with this cosmic ray. He doesn't have any sort of power. If he sides with the apes, he might be able to get a bit of that power from them. He would be superior to these people because, yes, it's a food chain at this point, you know, we've got the apes up top, but if he's got a little bit of those Fantastic Four's powers, he's above Reed, Sue, Johnny, and Ben. He's going to be able to manipulate his way into staying alive and eventually maybe getting off the planet. This results in Doom betraying the team. There's a big action set piece that happens as the apes start to try to drain the powers of the four. Unsuccessfully, Johnny eventually sees Reed's passivity as a method uh, that could work. So he fights without killing, which he was going to do that originally. He was going to originally kill the apes in order to get it off. But they don't. They win. They leave Doom on the planet, restoring the ship. And Doom is left there, presumably to die. post credit scene. Doom is sitting in this prison cell of the apes about ready to be executed. Suddenly, every single ape around him dies. All of them. Portal opens. Victor Von Doom. What are you doing here? Who are you? I'm Victor Von Doom. Suddenly, we see the M. Night Shyamalan 
Victor Von Doom, the Tim Burton Victor Von Doom, and the Michael Bay Victor Von Doom. Put together a legion. How'd you like to join us? Sounds amazing. I love that. This is the MCU, the Marky Mark cinematic universe. I'm building a franchise here, guys. That made me so happy. <laughs> and it made Pat Mark. so furious. <laughs> well, as everyone remembers, I, I famously walked out on the M. Night Shyamalan episode of the Fancast for podcast. The One Legion of, the of Dooms. Not the Legion of Doom, but the Legion of Dooms. dooms. They're all Mark Wahlberg, Victor Von Dooms, but from different universes. All I have to say is that pitch gave me good vibrations. I see what you did there. Mark Wahlberg will run where the rock has attempted to walk. Mark Wahlberg will return. <laughs> that was a wonderful pitch. I liked where you went with it. Uh, both of you so far have taken a lot of things from Matt Reeves, a lot of different elements from other films, ones we've talked about, ones we haven't, uh, which I certainly appreciate. And Jack, definitely your uh, end credit scene really was a nice Br- Brought it home, I would say. <laughs> that, that rug really tied the room together. And totally. what I will say about Jack is, Jack, for someone who's not a comic book fan, you understand comic books, I think, a lot more than even you realize. Because your story made me smile because it was so reminiscent of the Fantastic Four's original meeting with the Skrulls. Mm-hmm, and, totally. and, and and it was a very similar kind of setup involving, you know, like trickery and, and taking their powers. And so I, I, I really got to laugh at how how well you are, like how talented you are as a writer that you're able to come to the same conclusions as some of these extremely famous and legendary comic book writers. Magnificent pitch. All right. Dan, take it away. All right. We open on a futuristic cityscape, which borders a large body of water. Cars are flying, air is clean, and from all appearances, it's a utopia. But as we continue to pan across the city, we stop at the base of a large statue. The camera continues to rise, and we stop at a placard that reads, The beauty and existence of our civilization is all thanks to the vision and sacrifice of those who came before us. The next line down, it says, for Caesar. Pulling back, we see the Statue of Liberty-like monument to Caesar, the ape, from the previous Apes trilogy films. A voiceover states that it has been hundreds of years since the events of War for the Planet of the Apes, with the apes evolving into into the dominant species. What remaining humans have been relocated to where Australia and the New Zealand territories are. Additionally, the history of Caesar and his exploits is learned by all apes And due to their hyper-intelligent nature of the simian virus, apes were able to develop technology at a faster rate than humans, leading them to the harmonious world landscape we currently see. This is the prologue to the film, and the title card appears, reading, Evolution of the Planet of the Apes. The scene moves to the outside of a skyscraper, engineered to be environmentally conscious and accessible to the movement of the apes. It's called the Baxter Building. Inside, we see a multitude of ape scientists working on computers and in labs on various scientific ventures. Stopping at a specific room, we see a nameplate in an unfamiliar language symbology, but the subtitles share that it reads Reed R, Sue S, Johnny S, and Ben G. From inside, we hear, Finally, after centuries, ape progress can now move beyond our planet. We can look beyond the sky into the stars, maybe even beyond. This was from an ape scientist named Reed Richards. More exposition shares that since the apes rise, there was a ban on space and extra-dimensional travel and experimentation. The Earth was home, and it was their job to make it safe and sustainable. However, 
Reed and his team finally convinced the governing body that their work off-planet could do just that. On a monitor, we see a flying craft of some kind with a satellite attached to it preparing to launch. As the countdown commences, Reed and his team look on with anticipation. Over a PA system, we hear, Deep Space Satellite ready to launch in 10, 9. Once it reaches 1, the shuttle launches. There's a long tracking shot of the ship breaching the atmosphere, then releasing the satellite into space. Ben, activate the satellite. We see an orangutan who responds, My pleasure, Reed and he hits a few buttons on his keyboard. But as soon as the satellite activates, alarms start going off. We're getting some kind of anomaly near the moon, Reed, a female ape named Sue responds. Direct the satellite towards it. On another monitor, we see an image of a portal opening with a singular figure appearing. Once the portal closes behind it, the figure floats in a trajectory towards the Earth. Reed and his team start preparing for the creature's arrival. And here we learn that weapons had also been outlawed in this utopia. Thus, there is no military show of force in response to this being's arrival. Reed, Sue, Johnny, and Ben lead the greeting party to where the entity is approaching. Come that evening, they meet face-to-face with the humanoid creature in full purple armor, no visible face, and a prominent head crest on its helm. Waiting a beat for it to speak, Reed starts to open his mouth but is interrupted. In the voice of Richard Jenkins, as if from nowhere, Greetings, I am the High Evolutionary. Let it be known that my presence is an honor to your planet. Why's that? Johnny chimes in. The faceless man turns to him. I have been tasked with seeking out civilizations that have made great technological and societal strides and bring them into a network of other worlds where we can share knowledge with each other. We've been keeping an eye on your world for some time, and you have surpassed anything the prior alpha species was ever able to achieve. Why should we trust you? Ben interjects. Why should you not? The High Revolutionary responds. After some awkward silence and sideways glances among the four, Reed lets his curiosity take over and he says, I'll go with you. Soup steps forward. We will go with you. I didn't agree to this, Ben mumbles, but steps forward with the others anyway. The four emissaries stand before the high evolutionary who nods in approval, then a portal opens behind them and he ushers them through. Stepping through the other side of the portal, we get a new view of an even more advanced society. The beginning of the second act has no dialogue, and the only sound is just a grandiose score playing as the High Evolutionary shows the four around to all of the amazing advancements. However, while Reed and Johnny are looking on in awe, Ben and Sue give each other looks of unease. Eventually, they're brought to a lab, and the conversation starts back up. Uh, What do you have to show us here? Reed inquires. Oh, I've shared with you everything we have to share. A pause. Now it's your turn to share with us. As soon as he finishes saying that, energy bolts shoot from the walls, knocking all four of them out. The four wake, suspended in experiment tubes to the sound of the high evolutionary speaking. Your kind should not have evolved the way it had. We find this fascinating and an educational opportunity. We want to know what happens if we speed up your evolutionary process. The remainder of the second act are slow, score-driven shots of each of the four in their tubes slowly evolving, from Hominoidia to Ramapithecus to Othrolopithecus to Homo erectus, to Neanderthals, to finally Homo sapiens. But the High Evolutionary wants to take it a step further. You will be Homo superior. This is where we see them struggle and fight the change, but eventually we see the onset of some amazing powers. Reed starts to stretch and retract. Sue's body bends light. Johnny self-combusts, and Ben calcifies into this rock creature. And the scene goes black again. The third act begins with 
flashing semi-lucid montage of tests and tortures they are put through. However, with each one, it only strengthens their resolve, and then we see them attempt an escape. In an epic set piece, they fight their way through the lab and city, using their powers and hunting down the High Evolutionary. Once they have him cornered, prepared for an aggressive response, they hear a chuckle. You are more fantastic than we could have ever imagined. We want to go home, Reed states. By all means, that can be arranged, the Evolutionary responds. Hitting some buttons on a wrist cuff, a portal appears next to him. The four look at the High Evolutionary skeptically. Oh, you have shared with us more than enough. After some hesitant steps forward, the four sprint towards the gate. I hope you enjoyed your stay, was the last thing the four heard before they rushed through the portal. After being pulled every which way in the portal, they finally find purchase on the ground. It is dark, and they give their eyes a moment to adjust. However, it remains dark with a flicker of fire in the distance. Are we back? Sue asks. Don't know. Johnny, some light? Ben responds. One sec, I'm not sure how to get the flame on, and suddenly he bursts into fire, illuminating the area. While the camera is initially focused on Johnny, Sue, and Ben, a shocked Reed shouts, No! No! Oh no! Damn you! Damn you all to hell! And we turn to see what Reed discovered once the light came back on. They find themselves on the cliffside beach. Before them, the ruins of Caesar's statue lies half-floating in the water. Then another voice is heard, as if over a loudspeaker. Doom is your peace or doom is your doom. The camera pans over and we see the previous utopia now a dystopia, with ruined buildings, fires burning, no one visible on the streets, and drones flying on patrol. You also see holographic propaganda with a woman in a metal mask, her voice evoking more words of warning. The camera then scales up, and where Caesar's statue once stood, now stands one of doom. To be continued. And I imagine now, since Jack does his Mark Wahlberg bit over the credits, we hear Billie Eilish singing like a toned down acoustic version of like, hey, hey, we're the monkeys. Hey, hey, we're the monkeys. Always monkey around. But we're too busy singing to put anybody down. And no mid credit scene, just the to be continued. Yeah. All right. I'm, I'm, I'm there. I'm there. <laughs> I like it. I like it. I like any movie that uses the high evolutionary as a uh, means to an end. I, I kind it. of forgot he's going to be in the new Guardians film, but I'm like, eh. That's why your movie's this not part the MCU. Of... Right, right, exactly. Exactly. I think you were able to capture the absolute callousness and just douchebagness of the high evolutionary. Oh, yeah, he sucks. He's, he is a piece of shit atop a mountain of pieces of shit. Yeah, he really and, sucks. <laughs> I, I like that you were able to capture that about him. And I guess that um I guess the theme was monkeys. I guess the theme was apes. <laughs> it, it all, always always has been. <laughs> <laughs> if I do that, I would have incorporated simians into my uh into my Well, kid. I was very nervous. Uh when Jack told me his title pre-show, I'm like, oh no, are we finally gonna have a similar pitch? You know, it's bound to happen. But I'm very Phew. thankful that Despite having apes themes, they were in fact fairly different films. Yeah, yes, I just I didn't mind for the brand. Your oh, yours totally. yours is absolutely the movie that everybody would go see and love, Pat. <laughs> my my movie is the movie that will bring James Cameron and Scorsese into the MCU. <laughs> my movie is the movie that will bring all four Mark Wahlberg Victor Von Dooms <laughs> together and counting. 
Let, let's let's get something straight, listener. This is now going to be uh, this is, this is going to be something big. We're 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 prepping something. Do you think Wahlburgers would do all the catering? They would do all the crafting. Oh, absolutely, they would. <laughs> Are you kidding me? The the, the un, I bet the Uncharted set had Wahlburgers every single day. I just want, I'd want to be an extra on that movie. <laughs> no, I yeah, I enjoyed doing this pitch. Like I said, I, I wanted to feel very reminiscent of the original. It's kind of see Matt Reeves take a crack at the original, a version of the original Planet of the Apes movie, but mm-hmm. through a different window or different lens. So that was kind of my inspiration for this one. Yeah, your film was sweaty from a Marvel standpoint, but also from a Planet of the Apes standpoint. <laughs> There's a lot of Planet of the Apes references. My film was sweaty from a good movie standpoint. <laughs> <laughs> from a Wahlberg standpoint. From a, Wal- from a Mark Wahlberg standpoint. <laughs> it gets five out of five Wahlberg. <laughs> it, gets fi- it gets five out of five Father Stews. <laughs> <laughs> it's five out of five Daddy's Home Twos. Daddy's Home Twos, exactly. <laughs> Uh, well there you have it Uh, i do think that is probably a good point for all of our sanities to stop there uh after the five out of five father stews but you have heard our castings our pitches for a matt reeves fantastic four films or uh, probably two of them being more planet of the apes films but who's checking we do hope that you the listeners have enjoyed our exploration into these what if scenarios we do want to make a special note that the fancast of four podcast is hosted for free on anchor we do encourage you if you have your own podcast idea to check it out it really is a great resource for getting your idea off the ground you can also find us on apple podcasts google podcasts spotify and youtube if you're listening on youtube we would greatly appreciate you hitting the subscribe button and commenting with who your matt reeves cast would be on what you thought of our lists and pitches and on which director you'd like to see next i want to thank matt hart and maddie gunner for the fantastic theme music they created for us and i certainly want to thank you pat for being our guest today i hope you had fun now please tell our listeners where else they can find you what's up guys you can find me on the Montiverse, youtube.com slash the Montiverse on all the socials at the Montiverse, I'm doing the Instagram reels. I'm doing the TikToks. You guys know what it is. You can find me there. Also, you can find Dan and Jack on the Montiverse from time to time. Yeah, go subscribe to the Montiverse. Pat's creating a lot of really good original content. And Daily content as opposed here. to our every other week content. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, that is our show. Thank you all so much for listening. I'm Dan Bettenhausen. I am Jack Mayer. And on behalf of our guest, Pat Bolfamonte, we hope you all stay fantastic.